Hello, my name is Shelby and welcome to Education 612, Meaningful Assessment Practices from Concordia College. We will be reading a few different books that may challenge our thinking on current assessment practices that we currently use in our classrooms. We will also dive into different strategies and research to move forward and improve our assessment practices to best meet the needs of our students. I cannot wait to get started and share some of the new things I've learned from the readings. With that, let's go ahead and get started. The first book that we're going to begin reading in this class is called Giving Students a Say, Smarter Assessment Practices to Empower and Engage. And this book, it was written by Myron Duick. The very first chapter is called The Elevator Pitch. And so it's trying to get us engaged in trying to catch our attention to why we need to better think about our current assessment practices. And so one of the quotes that stood out to me in this first chapter was that I empower my students through authentic learning experiences and engaging assessment practices. And all that I do, I develop meaningful relationships with students so that they become confident learners, better prepared for whatever they might encounter. What I really liked about this quote and this elevator pitch was, first of all, the focus on meaningful relationships with students. I once read a book, I don't remember what it was called, but it talked about how students will want to work if, for teachers if they know that you care about them and you show that they matter and that you really care about their success. And then it compa compared that to us with the people who manage us, our bosses, our principals. We don't want to do our best if we can see that they don't really seem to care about us. But when they show interest in our work and they show that they care about us, we are much more likely to want to try harder and work harder and do a better job for them. Something else that stood out to me came up in chapter two. And so chapter two is called Sharing and Co-Creating Student-Centered Learning Targets. Now this is something that was completely new to me. I um, never have thought about creating learning targets with the students. We talk about how student choice is so important, so I'm surprised that this is something that has never come to my mind. It's something that I look at the standard for the day and what we're teaching, and I create a student-friendly learning target based off of that. But this chapter talked about how if we want to work alongside with students, we should be involving them with help them helping us create these learning targets. And so one of the quotes in the book um, shared that too often learning targets are one, teacher-centered, which I just described, that's something that I have a problem with, is that it's normally what is my goal for the students. It is simply copied from the state or national standards, which is true. That's exactly what I do is I look at our standards and then I create a learning target based off of that. Or three, it's on display, but there's no apparent plan for relevant for a relevant learning activity. And you see that all the time, where schools are enforcing to make sure that students or teachers have their learning targets posted in the room, but they're never referred to. They don't relate to the activity and they stay on the board for days, maybe weeks at a time. They don't get updated and that's a problem. We're not using them correctly in the, that situation. In chapter three, we, um, the chapter was called Using Rubrics to Assess Performance. 
Now rubrics aren't completely new to me. We had them in school and college mostly. And we had them in some writing classes where they we had to review those to know what our expectations were for writing assignments. However, I've never used it with elementary school students. I've used it for some writing, but not much. Um, and I've never used it for math or for reading. And this chapter really explained the importance of making sure to use those rubrics. What they shared the purpose of rubrics was, was that it helps students know what is necessary to be successful on the activity, project, or pursuit. Which is true. We want to make sure that students are being successful, so they need to know what is expected of them and what do they need to do in order to be successful. It also talked about the purpose being to support teachers in evaluating student performances. Um, and it's the act of doing something or the product of a student endeavor. And so we need to make sure that we are having a rubric so that we're assessing students fairly and accurately. We're not just guessing how they did. We're not just gonna say, oh, well, they did pretty good on this assignment. I think I'm gonna give them a P for proficient. No, we need to be specific with what we're looking for and that it's staying aligned to the learning targets that you have for the lesson or for the project. And then it got into the different design considerations when you think of creating a rubric. And so some of those considerations that Myron Duick shared were one, to ensure that the highest level can be modeled and it is attainable. So some good words that he said to use in rubrics would be extending, sophisticated, transfer, mastery, and advance for that highest level. And he talked about to avoid the word exceeding, which I think was very informative for me because I feel like that's word that I never would have second. I wouldn't have thought about it. I probably would have used it. But he explained that when you use the word exceeding, it's saying that you're pushing for next grade level material. When really we want to, we want students to extend on the current grade level material. We want them to be able to transfer it. We want them to master it. We don't necessarily want to be using the word exceeding. The second rubric design consideration is to use strength-based language at the emerging level. The third suggestion was to include only criteria that are linked to the established standards. The fourth design consideration was to avoid quantitative language. So that means that when students look at the numbers, if you use quantitative language, they're just gonna look at the numbers to decide how much effort to exert or how deeply to engage. And I completely agree with that idea because as a student, I was one of those people where I look at a number if I'm writing a paper. It has to be four to six pages. I only write to fit that four to six pages. Whereas sometimes students, myself included, could have gone above and beyond had I been able to write longer than the six pages. And then it also talks about avoiding using absolutes such as all, none, every, or never in the rubric. The sixth idea was to avoid combining multiple variables in a criterion row. That can just be confusing for students and teachers as well. And then the last suggestion was to ensure that the descriptors in the same row describe the same characteristic. And so with that, it's something that I really um, am looking forward to working on. I know it's gonna take a lot of work, but I think especially starting with the big projects 
this upcoming school year, I want to make sure that I am implementing rubrics in those assignments. So with our math projects, our writing, our reading, so that I have a clear goal of where I want my kids to be and what I'm looking for when I'm providing them with a grade. Um, and then also making sure that if we're going to have a big project, to have examples for students to refer to so they can see what the different levels look like. Um, one way that I have done this in the past is with our gifted resource teacher last year. We did uh, exemplar, so the students were given a math problem and then they had to use words, pictures, words and pictures to describe how they solved the problem on paper. Well, through that whole process, we showed them all of the different levels so that they knew how they could get to a specific level on the proficiency scale. It wasn't an example with that same problem, but it was one similar so that they could see, oh, this one, they didn't, they weren't even related to the problem. They kind of just drew a picture and they could see each step, how they varied. And then they could see as a teacher, this is what we're looking for and this is how you show your work. And then it also, the final idea that I liked from this chapter was that it talked about the walkabouts as an assessment strategy. So versus just giving students a paper and a pencil or having them make a presentation. <coughs> Excuse me. To use walkabouts, so where you may walk around the school, walk around the community, and have students identify specific examples or things that they see, and then they can apply it to the, what they have learned um, with different, especially for like social studies, apply that vocabulary and see if they're able to identify it in the community. And I think the biggest thing with that brings us back to that first quote. I empower my students through authentic learning experiences. We want these learning experiences to be authentic. It needs to be something that's going to apply to them as we are um, preparing students for the world outside of the school world. And so with that, um, I will be ending this podcast, but I will be back with the next chapters and the remaining chapters of the story called Giving Students a Say, which will be chapters four through six. Thank you for listening.